This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. Welcome to Retail Retold, everyone. Today, I am joined by Simeon Siegel. Simeon is the Managing Director and Senior Retail Analyst at BMO Capital Markets. He's been covering retail equities for 15 years. He's regularly a guest on CNBC to talk all things about the evolving retail landscape. Excited to have him here. Welcome to the show, Simeon. Thanks, Chris. Good to be here. And Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too, man. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do, who you guys are, and what you're working on right now. Sure, sounds good. So in the uh, the magical world of retail equity research, I analyze what is a constantly and perpetually changing landscape across retail from a uh, perspective for investors. So my task is to determine where retail is going on a company-specific level, generally speaking, for public equities, for public stocks, and to recommend whether investors buy or sell them. Part of that is obviously understanding what the industry is doing and where it's going, and ultimately being able to chronicle, being able to analyze, and then in the instances where it makes sense, perhaps even um, help suggest ideas is what we do from our seat. So what that means, what we're constantly doing is perpetually changing as well. And hopefully, if I'm doing my job, it's tracking the trends, it's using pattern recognition, but it's also trying to foresee the future a little bit and trying to predict where we're going. And that's what makes this so interesting because we've got this great qualitative blend of thematics within retail, but there's a lot of quantitative as well. And that that fusion is what I love doing. That's really cool. Interesting gig. And I've always been fascinated by the equity analyst uh, folks on Wall Street. And I think they always bring a unique perspective. And that might be the nicest thing anyone has ever said about the collective group of Wall Street analysts before. Look at that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Say what well, you really think. Come on, man. <laughs> well, I, 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 I do. You guys provide a lot of insights and uh, you provide a lens to someone like me who is you're taking a step back, right? Me, I am in the weeds of it. I'm talking to, or my team and my company, we're talking to retailers every day. We're on the ground with retailers and they are, and we're doing business with them every day. So you, that, that cohort of people give us the opportunity to take a step back and say, okay, this is what's going on from a little bit higher level, which is important to do. So what I'll say is if I am not in the weeds, I'm not doing my job all that well. Um, so I, I, I agree with you and I hear your point. I think it's important that we all take a step back. So I think that at the end of the day, that hedgehog and fox thing, if you can be a, a blend of both, right? It's a scary looking animal, but it makes a ton of sense. You can't be higher level without understanding the weeds and you can't only be restricted to the weeds without knowing the implications. And that's where this part, this idea of, using the pattern recognition, using what's happened in the past to make sure that we don't continue to play into the future, the same mistakes we've made back then, right? The definition of, of retail insanity. I think that's really critical. And that's what, what I, my team and I try to focus on 
is to constantly take those weeds, take those nuance, because again, we have to be talking to the retailers every day as well, and then combine that to assess what's the, what's the broader health? What's the broader health of this company? What's the broader health of the macro environment? To then determine, okay, where do we go from there? And one, one interesting example was beginning of the pandemic, I remember a, one specific phone call I had where I was talking to a vendor and they made a comment that the retailers canceled all of their orders but they expected them to still make all the product just in case. So the retailer was essentially saying, there's no purchase order coming for holiday, but you make the product and you sit on it, you absorb the risk. And so talking this through, all of a sudden it just became so clear that there was going to be a lack of inventory for holiday, not because of the port stoppage, not because of shipping delays, simply because the factory shut down because people weren't making orders that they weren't getting paid to make them for. And so we created this future bottleneck where inventory was going to just simply not be there. What's so interesting along those lines is, okay, what do you do with that? Because if I were to tell you with a crystal ball that six months from now, you're going to sell fewer units simply because you have fewer units, well, the natural course of action, if you can plan it ahead of time, is to make sure you're pricing those units up. Sell less, charge more, make more money. But you have to be able to see that. You have to be able to take that nuance, take that weeds, and try to extrapolate what that's going to mean for the future. Yeah, that that's a great point. Awesome example. All I was getting to was in the if I were to connect the example you just gave is you're analyzing based on the retailers and their vendors and those and and those people. I'm one of the vendors. I'm a landlord, right? So that vendor who talked to you about the risk that he had to take by, you know, potentially producing that product and having to sit on it, I'm like that person, the person doing the business with those retailers day to day versus analyze my job being to analyze them, even though we have a lot of data and analyze the information in order to make good decisions about our properties and retailers. Uh, it's a it's a little bit of a different lens. You you get to take a step back because of your role versus that vendor or myself is the point I was making. So all that means is you and I need to be talking every day. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. All right. I want to take us to some of the things you did in 2020 and some of the things you're doing in the future because I think you did some interesting things in 2020. And the the first thing that I that really I found and I thought was really thought provoking was you did a research project on retailers and retailers who had done mass closures. Can you tell us a little bit about what you find on that on what you found when you did that research study? Yeah, so so this was my, my team and I had spent a nice amount of time on a hypothesis that ended up pivoting, and and that's I, I guess obviously the best type of research where you don't go in knowing what you're going to find or even what you're looking for, but playing off of it actually was related to this inventory theme, where we started looking at tangentially. We started. Everyone always talks about the death of the of retail, retail apocalypse, retail Armageddon, big words that sound great, and. What we ended up looking through was this notion that, and the report, the, the title of this report was, did COVID actually save retail? And I know that's a, a very potent title and, and it's not fair to, to many, but 
it seemed based on every media headline that retail was in the course. The way we started describing it was it was a downward, slightly downward facing hamster wheel. So you're running in place, but you have this slight angle, which is bringing you downhill and not in a good way. So this problem for decades, the mantra of retail became grow at all costs and it was grow for growth's sake. And the problem with growing for growth's sake is bigger is not necessarily better. And what we found was there was a point in time where the incremental sale becomes a detrimental sale. And that makes a ton of sense when you're not dealing with a commodity. If you're selling cereal, then at the end of the day, you, you, you supply as much as demand can take. If you're selling something that has an artificial price premium, scarcity value matters. And selling an extra sweater may actually devalue all of the prior sweaters. So what we did was we looked into, we figured, okay, COVID is here. What does it mean for, for retail? And what we found, and this is the connection to that inventory story, what we found was that there have been plenty of companies that have had mass store closures. We, the list is, is enormous. But what we found was that every single company that had a mass store closure saw their sales and their operating profit lower than, when they, than before the cut. And that's on a dollar basis and it's on a margin basis. And so that idea, which is not at all what we would have thought we would have found, right? The idea is close underperforming stores and your profit level should go up. What we found was all you're doing is shrinking your business. If you're trying to cut, if you're trying to grow by reducing expenses, all you're doing is shrinking your business. So on the flip side, what we found was companies that were able to commit to raising price actually saw much higher profits. And so to, to wrap this up in a not so pretty bow, what we found was that out of a group of, let's say 30 companies we were looking at, 30 of the largest publicly traded companies, so 30 of the largest companies around, only five by our math, by my team's math, would benefit from a mass store closure. Whereas only five wouldn't benefit from raising price. And that became exactly the way you framed it, Focus the retail, it seemed to us that the retail problem in America was not one of an oversaturation of stores, but an oversaturation of discounts and a focus on grabbing an incremental consumer when the reality is that incremental consumer isn't always healthy for the business. That is fantastic, refreshing to hear. It leads me to a bunch of questions. So I say it's refreshing to hear because it's just not what you hear in headline news, but it leads me to a bunch of questions. So here's the first one. Would you say the same is true in the e-commerce world because they are growing at all costs and, and they're growing the customer acquisition? And we often hear marketing is the new rent. And if you look at retailers' occupancy to sales ratio that are physical and you look at pure play e-commerce retailers and their marketing cost to sales, it's significantly higher than retailers brick and mortar occupancy to sales. Even when you combine that occupancy number with also their marketing number and are they adding our e-commerce retailers for the sake of growth, adding a lot of unprofitable consumers today? Yeah. So Great question. Um, I will, before I get to it, I'll just address one point there that I think is so critical. Not only is marketing as a percent of sales higher than occupancy as a percent of sales, 
But marketing is a variable percent of sales. Marketing doesn't go away. It's a unit cost. Whereas rent, plenty of rent per square foot, right? And, and I know that we're shifting this conversation to becoming one of contingent rent and there's different aspects. But the simple idea that rent, you know what it is and therefore you can leverage rent. That's how you make money. Whereas marketing and everything else, right? E-commerce is a structurally variable cost business, which I would argue is what has made it so hard to be profitable. So I think that that's a, such an important point that I agree with. And, and I think it's, uh, it's important to acknowledge not only is it higher, but it doesn't go away. In terms of e-com, any business that is trying, that, that relies on pricing ability needs to also run the equation of distribution versus exclusivity, right? And we can, we can talk about this if you want, we can leave it alone if you want, but exclusivity is just the ugly way of saying authenticity. They're the same. I think they're two sides of the same coin. You're, you're, you're limiting your audience size. So that's the choice of figuring out how big you want to be. Ecom needs to do the same thing, right? So ecom is playing into this conversation of figuring out ultimately do I want an infinite amount of consumers? And by the way, there are obviously some very large marketplaces that do because they don't care about pricing. They actually want to use pricing as a lever on the way down. So this matters for companies that are focused on pricing on the way up. That generally is more focused on the brand than it is on the retailer. Retailers selling other people's goods generally are going to be more incentivized to sell more than to sell healthier, even though that's counterintuitive and probably simply factually incorrect. So I think that that's the easy answer to your question. Yes, e-com does that too. The question is how big are they? Because we're talking, there's a certain scale element here. But at the end of the day, any single company that relies on pricing power and that believes they're selling something special needs to figure out what the right balance between exclusivity and distribution is. That brings to the second question. That was a great answer. It brings me to the second question though. The raising of price and you you cover some of them like Planet Fitness. A lot of my tenants, what they do is they provide a value proposition to the consumer. My tenants are Walmart and Target and Five Below and TJX and the Burlington stores and dollar stores. Would you say they they fit into the same category that you were discussing about what you found out about the the retailers about mass closures? Because it would appear that their their specialty is the ability to provide this value and raising prices would hurt them. So you're, yeah. And, and listen, the ones, the companies you just mentioned are in the very fortunate ability that they are growing, right? Those are generally growth companies. Those are generally anchors and they're growing traffic. So they're actually seeing people come into the stores. I think there's an important thing to acknowledge. I think people have generally talked about we're in this instant gratification world. That must mean we love e-commerce. People don't love e-commerce. People love convenience. So the beauty of the most of the companies you mentioned, I actually think it might, ironic or not, it's the largest, the companies with the largest store fleets that see traffic growing. It's the companies with the 200 to 800 stores to completely over stereotype and, and, and oversimplify that see traffic declines. Because if you think about it, right, and, and you'll know this a lot more than I will, but if I, all things considered, all else equal, most people would rather be in an aisle than be in their on their couch in their underwear. It's just more convenient to be sitting on your couch. So if I know that there's 1500 stores, which means that they're every most of the stores are going to be 10 minutes away. That's a much easier pill to swallow and an easier calculus to make than to say, I need to drive 20 minutes to a mall. 
So I think that that's one thing to keep in mind, where the companies, your, your companies that you just mentioned are actually offering meaningful convenience. Two, they're actually offering value. That is their proposition. So that's important. But three, they are all, I think all of the ones you mentioned, if I, if I go back in my head, I think they're all selling other people's things. And that's a key differentiator as well. Because if you're selling someone else's goods, you actually don't have the choice to raise price. You can obviously raise price, but only to a certain degree. And you don't get to, by, by selling more, you're not inherently going to be de devaluing your store. That's the question. The question is, you need to take a holistic view of the brand. If there's a certain handbag walking down the street, if there's one handbag, you can charge a lot more than if there's one million handbags because ubiquity is not cool. People don't want to see what they're, if they believe they're paying up, they want to believe that it's scarce. That means that that brand can make the decision to, to make, to manufacture fewer goods so they can price higher. If you're selling other people's goods, your goal is to sell more rather than to sell healthier. Even though, again, like I said, that's, you should be selling healthier. It's just not under your control. If you as a specific retailer, a third-party retailer decide to sell fewer goods, they'll make it up somewhere else. And then it doesn't help you at all. Sure. I think the key point and one of the things that we like is about the a lot of our retail tenants is majority of Americans are craving value. And we, we love the convenience and the value that a lot of our retail partners can provide to the American consumer. If you're in a world where I don't know what it is today, but a couple of years ago, 78% of consumers were paycheck to paycheck. Value is important. They can't afford to pay for delivery for everything and every retailer can't afford to give free delivery. And therefore, there's this physical retailer that can provide a value to the consumer and also provide a convenience. You mentioned convenience and I think it depends on your definition of convenient. You know, for me, it's pretty convenient to get in my car and hop to Target real quick. That's more convenient than ordering on the couch and getting it even in a couple hours or, or maybe tomorrow. It, it, if I want it now, I can go grab it. And there are certain products that you need now. In the middle of the pandemic, one of the things that I, a story I tell is I have a three and a two-year-old and we needed diapers. And we went on Amazon and it was saying like six weeks. And I was like, well, how does that work? <laughs> can't have diapers six weeks from now. That won't, that won't work. And I went on a Walmart's website and I saw, you know, four stores locally to me where they had them. And I went and got them that day. Uh, so, uh, to me, that was convenient versus ordering from my couch and waiting even 24 hours would have been problematic. And I, I took over, I took over, I took over in my household that uh, having diapers in the house was my responsibility. That was one of the, the things that happened during the pandemic. So pampers are my responsibility. Yes. So does that mean it's not convenient or does that mean you want it now, right? And I think that there's a question there because I think we have to be careful because if I told you that Instacart would get it to you faster than you could bring it home, it's obviously still more convenient to be at home. So I think there's a little bit of this gating factor where, listen, the fact that a delivery service can bring it to you is also obviously critically dependent on the store being there, right? They're bringing from the store, not from a DC. So it's just another version of shopping. So I think that that's, we, we can't let that go alone. Yeah, that's a great point. I think you should hit on that. That is a great point. They, at, at least today, and it seems like the foreseeable future, that last mile 
with the exception of Amazon is, is really the store. Yeah. So I, I think that that's, that's really important when we think about that. But what I will say is to me, again, everything is, is some formula, everything is some equation and the notion it, it's, it's obviously more convenient, right? In, in, in podcast air quotes, it's more convenient to be on a couch because it's just easier, right? Convenience is easy, but it doesn't mean it's a better experience. So the question is how difficult, how inconvenient is it to get to drive out to a big box retailer or a grocery store that's within that five to 10 minute drive? It's not that inconvenient if you, if you have a car, right? So I think that that's the point where all else equal, that's what I say, all else equal, you'd rather be picking your own apples, Right. You'd rather be able to decide what you want, but there's a price and it's less convenience. So the question becomes, that's why I say, ironically or not, the stores that have at least whatever, over a thousand stores, generally 1500, generally mean they're closer to you. And therefore you find that they're more advantageous. And I think there's no question there's value to that. We are going to take a quick break here. And now a word from one of our sponsors. LeasePilot is a cloud-based platform that connects your drafting language and asset information to a powerful, data-driven backend that understands the underlying logic of your entire document. So when you add, say, an extension option, LeasePilot will adjust the term, recalculate the rent tables, and update the assignment provisions automatically. In short, drafts get out the door faster and the critical information in your lease is always online, providing an instant abstracts and direct connection to your existing CRM and ERP systems. To learn more, visit leasepilot.co. I just wanted to say, I can't say enough about LeasePilot. We are a customer of LeasePilot at DLC. The software is phenomenal. Their service is incredible. and we are now getting leases out the door much faster than we ever could without this product. I want to thank LeasePilot. And if you haven't checked them out, you need to go to their website, leasepilot.co. Let's pivot a second and, and let's, and, and anything else before I pivot, anything else on this research project you did, did COVID save retail that you think is insightful that we should talk about? Uh, I could talk about it for days, but um, without, without going page by page or, or exhibit by exhibit, I think those were the main pieces. And I think that ultimately what it did was it showed us that there was an opportunity for, for context if companies were willing to commit, and again, these are more brands than they are third-party retailers because you have to be able to, to see the benefit of the price elasticity, but companies that commit to raising price 25%, which sounds like a lot until you think about it in the context of the sheer dollar, right? a $20 t-shirt going to 25 bucks, but companies that are willing to commit to 25% lift could actually see as long as they lost less than 40% of their units could still come out ahead. I want to say that again. As long as you're willing to raise price 25% and stick to it, you could give up 40% of your units and still and come out ahead. Now, again, that's an average number. We have company-specific pieces. So don't just take that and, and apply it. Run your own flex, flex that analysis. 
but it was just so clear that there's some of these really large companies had simply gotten too large and they had devalued what their brand stood for. Who are some of the companies that were in this 30 store project? Who are some of the brands? Who are the poster children for this? What we looked for was we looked for very large brands. So I looked, my team put together this great scatter plot, looking at the largest revenues and the lowest profits. Because the way that I view it is revenues are a measure of customer buy-in. Gross profit is a measure of brand perception, of external brand perception. If you have a lot of revenues and a little bit of profit, people want your stuff, but they don't want it that badly. Right. They, they, they're waiting for the deal. They're telling you it's worth a lot less than you think. Flip that equation. Sell less, charge more, make more. So that's what we look for. The two we upgraded. So in my world, I, we have ratings on stocks. We upgraded shares of L Brands, which owns Victoria's Secret and Bath and Body Works, and shares of Under Armour at the very beginning of the pandemic for exactly this reason. Two incredibly large global brands that people love but had seen their profits plummet in recent years because I argue they had gone too far. So that's Victoria's Secret and Under Armour. And what we've seen since then, that was early April, May, somewhere around, around the early of the pandemic. What we've seen since then is we've seen a very market and an intent, a purposeful shift to shrink their revenues to grow their profits, not to shrink their expenses to grow their profits. They did shrink expenses, but it was a measure of acknowledging that the revenue base was not healthy for them. So you watch them buy inventory down meaningfully. You watch them promote meaningfully less with this view of recapturing what the brand stood for, even if it meant losing, and losing is too passive of a word because it was active, it was firing certain customers. And what they essentially said was, if you want something from Victoria's Secret, or if you want a pair of sweatpants from Under Armour, understand there is premium built into this, therefore the price needs to reflect it. And you will not get it at 60% off anymore. And when they did that, we started seeing a very healthy uh, climb in profits, even though revenues continued to fall. And one more time, this is total gross profits and not just percentages we're talking. They had more money, less revenue. They had just more money in their hands. More money in the bank. Wow. On less revenues. Very, very interesting. And it's not from cutting stores. Is- and listen, the reality is everyone needs to prune underperforming stores, but it's not a mass closure. It's not that no one has ever, and, and it's, it's exactly that, right? Closing stores is defensive. It's not offensive. No one has ever gotten bigger by shutting stores. And then what we all know is that when you shut your stores, you also lose corresponding e-commerce dollars that are in the neighboring area. Yeah, for sure. Let's, th- this has been fascinating and we'll talk about where people can find you after. Let's pivot to the, the next thing. Now, we're in 2021. Give us a glimpse of how you're viewing what happens next in retail. Yeah, so I, I like, like no one, have a crystal ball. Um, but what I would say is, if the most interesting factor for me last year was this forced lack of inventory reminded people to sell less and raise price, the big question is going to be now that inventory is open, now that factories are back, now that the inventory stop, the port stoppages clear themselves up and we post-holiday resume some level of shipping normalcy, what do people buy inventory? What do they plan? And we don't yet know because we're just turning the corner on 2021, but the question is going to be, do companies that got smaller take their medicine? Do they 
hold the line and acknowledge that they're better as smaller businesses and focus on health and healthy growth rather than growth for growth's sake? Or do we find ourselves back in that prisoner's dilemma where someone says, I can cross the picket line as no one else does, right? So are they going to hold the inventory line or are they going to cross it? And if they cross it, how many people are going to do that? Who's going to be the one that says, I can sell more goods at that higher price and it's not going to hurt me because inevitably that's where the dominoes fall. And I think that that's what's going to be so interesting to see. I think that for those fortunate, I, I recognize that this, this comment is very bifurcated and, and therefore not, it's, a, it's an unfair comment. But for those that were fortunate enough to survive COVID, they then are figuring out, are they going to thrive post it? It was this forced reset. And for these businesses, it was an opportunity to refashion their business for the future. The question is, do they maintain that? Human psychology, human tendency, human nature is to forget the lessons we've learned and to continue repeating, right? Again, back to that retail insanity, continue making the same mistake over. Hopefully this was an awakening. Hopefully this was an opportunity for these companies to acknowledge that they need to focus on profitable growth. But I think we're going to see it in inventory. And I think that if all of a sudden as shoppers, we start seeing a lot of heavy promotion, we're going to know that all that learning last year was for naught. And hopefully we can take these lessons and actually focus on the health of the business. Don't just look to cut expenses, look to maintain the right level of revenue so that you can justify the profits. Holiday 2020, was it what you expected? Listen, the numbers aren't out yet, but I, what, what I, walking into holiday 2020, my team and I believe we were going to see a lighter revenue, heavier profit season with very few discounts. So really good if you're the retailer, not as exciting when you're holiday, when you're trying to find presents under the tree at a great deal. I think that's what we saw. I think we saw that the companies that I think we saw the, for the first time in a long time, a holiday where demand outstripped supply. I think we saw a, for the first time in a long time, a non-chaotic holiday. So an orderly holiday where retailers and brands were able to bring the holiday early. And I think more importantly than anything, we saw the first holiday since 08 where the consumer could not demand whatever they wanted. We saw a shift in the balance of power back to the providers of content, back to the retailers and the brands away from the consumers of content, which had been probably the largest culprit for the biggest erosion in profits we've seen over the last decade. Before we end, what level of research do you do on e-commerce and digitally native brands and all that stuff? Do you guys, you know, a lot of them aren't public. Do you, do you cover, are you following, are you tracking? What are you doing there? Yeah. So my view is to be able to opine on the largest players. You need to understand the entire ecosystem. So we spend a lot of time across the board. Um, we publish reports only on the public stocks. That's a, that's our mandate. But at the end of the day, uh, if, if someone calls up my team and we don't know what a digitally native brand is, that's a problem. Got it. One of the things that I've been wondering is many of these digitally native brands went into COVID unprofitable, whereas, well, uh, many of the physical retailers, they may have had declining sales but they went into COVID, at least they were generating profit. Where, how do you think that plays out as we move into 2021? Yeah, so I think two things. One, going back to the prior comment, I think that that speaks to the idea of fixed versus variable cost. An e-commerce business with variable cost doesn't matter how large they get, the costs never go away. 
fixed cost business, once you cover your fixed costs, once you cover your rent, everything else is gravy. So I think that that's really important. I think that's one of the reasons we, we have now seen a meaningful shift. It's not new news anymore, but in the last five years, we've seen a meaningful shift for the digitally natives. We no longer call them DTC business. We call them digitally native because they started off digitally, but now they're omnichannel. Right. We what what I I've said this before. I think it's important. I think omnichannel pre-pandemic essentially meant e-commerce. Right. That was the special part. Everyone knew you had stores. Now you have e-com. What people need to remember is omnichannel was the answer. It's not e-com. In the pandemic, it became we, we reverted back to a monochannel retail environment because you were just going online. But we need to remember is they both have to coexist, and that was very important for profits. Now, to your point, I think another another thing that I've, <laughs> if I'm being intellectually honest with myself, if you ask me, okay, so you're making a bunch of calls, what what do you get wrong? I thought exactly what you just described. I, I thought at the beginning of the pandemic, this was going to be the day of reckoning for a whole host of digitally native, VC funded, profitless businesses. That's what I thought as well. And and how wrong were we? Right? Like, listen, it happened to be coincidentally or not that they were all selling sweatpants, but at the end of the day, these businesses were nimble and they knew how to market to their consumer and they managed to continue to get their product that was desired into the hands of the consumers that were willing to spend. So I think that the reality is there's been this pivot and what it means for profitability, what it means for, for terminal values and all of those. Well, that hasn't changed, but the ability to be nimble, listen, if, if during the pandemic, large businesses, the largest business in the world, and the smallest startups were put on equal footing. If you lose all your revenues and you don't have to pay any expenses, then what's the difference between a startup and a, and a, and a large conglomerate? Hmm. So all of a sudden, you had to think about it in the same line, right? And you have to think about where you want to be. And it gave this really interesting equal footing that obviously goes away as soon as stores open, but it lets you rethink how you want to approach the business. And I think that was the most interesting takeaway of acknowledging what do you want to be when you grow up if you're a retailer or a brand? Don't let it happen to you take control of your corporate life. Awesome. And with that, we will move on to the final segment of the show. This has been great. Call the final segment, Retail Wisdom. You're studying retailers, but you, you focus on retailers that have physical presence. So you, you see real estate from afar. First question we ask people, and this is the last episode, we're asking these three questions. So uh, for those listeners out there, we have a new set of retail wisdom coming for 2021. But here are the questions. Are you ready, Simeon? Ready as I'll ever be. What is your best piece of commercial real estate advice? <laughs> My best piece of commercial real estate advice is to know what you know and know what you don't. And commercial real estate is not something that I should be, uh, that I should be advising. Fair enough. Fair enough. But you do, <laughs> you do see all the groups that you cover make real estate decisions, whether it's opening stores and closing stores, and uh, you see them make real estate decisions all the time. Yeah, I think don't just close a store because it's easy. I think don't just, don't, don't, it is the, the I'm going to say most obvious without being most correct. So I think it might be the most obvious and most glaring and most, most recent, most 2000 to 2020 decision to close stores if they just seem like they're underperforming. Instead, focus on how to elevate the stores. Ultimately, if you can't, ultimately, if they are a drag, then yes, obviously, you should prune underperforming boxes. But don't just put a giant X because those businesses are generating revenue. Ask yourself why they're not being profitable first. Love that. Next question, fan favorite, number two. 
What extinct retailer do you wish would come back from the dead? Mm. So I used to go play world. I don't know. I don't know how, how big we have to do whether they're chains, but I used to go to my grandmother when I was really young, every time I would go visit her, she would take me to this one toy store. And I think it was called play world. Um, and if not, I'll just fall back and go with KB toys, but it was every, I'd get an action figure. Every time I went, I always wonder where they all disappeared to, but it was this great experiential feeling for a, uh, for a four-year-old. It was just aisles with action figures. So there was nothing experiential about it, but it's all uh, some really nice memories in, in toy stores. And I think that as we think about toy stores, toy stores, unfortunately, as commodities, because all they are are aisles of toys, became a very hard business. But I think for kids, being able to walk up and down an aisle and just go crazy is, uh, is a special experience. Very cool. Great answer. Last question. You ready? Drum roll. All right. We're sitting here. You have, I normally have a beard. I don't. You have a very nice beard. I am on the Beard Club's website. And they have their starter kit, which has a straight edge razor, cedar beard balm, beard shampoo, beard oil, and a beard brush. What does that retail for? This is not a fair question because if you would see my beard, you'll see that in no way is my beard remotely groomed. The products <laughs> you listed are not something I have ever used. <laughs> um, let's go with. I'm going to assume you're only talking to me with some version of premium uh, material, and I'm going to assume you're not trying to sign me up to a subscription box. So let's just say a nice kit for, I don't know, $69.99, but I have no idea what products you even listed to me because I've not I've never used them. Giving you a little bit of your own medicines. First off, you're close, $65 regularly. However, however... They they do it. They're they're doing the sip. There is there is a percentage off, and right now it's retailing at thirty eight dollars. By the way, you know why there's a percentage off? Because people like me during COVID are not doing anything involving grooming with their beards over here. <laughs> anyway, uh, great. Well, I was close with the sixty five. Yes, the right, right rule says I lost. Yes. So where uh, where can people find you, Simeon? Um, I'm fairly accessible on LinkedIn. So Simeon Siegel. Otherwise, my, my email finds its way out across more avenues than I want. I think it might, might be uh, hackable somewhere, too. But um, LinkedIn is probably the best place to find me initially. Awesome. And I'm generally fairly approachable. If I can help, please just let me know. You're, you're on TV often. How, how often can we find you? When can we usually find you on CNBC and places like that? Well, now that I know that there's a deal on a grooming set, I can uh, I can return to my TV. <laughs> um, I, I I try to be helpful to whoever's asking. So generally speaking, my media appearances are are throughout. But I think they also manage to find their way onto LinkedIn. So that that ends up being a good amalgamation of anything Perfect. in my life that's worthwhile. Apparently, that is not family related. Awesome. Well, Simeon, this has been great. Really appreciate it. Uh, thanks so much for coming on, man. Good to be here. Appreciate it. Happy New Year. And I'm glad I could close out the last three questions. I can't wait to hear what the next three are. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal that you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us at retailretold at dlcmgmt.com. This show highlights the stories behind the deals from all perspectives 
so it doesn't matter if you are a retailer, broker, entrepreneur, architect, or an attorney. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.